Welcome to Farmcast, presented by the University of Arizona College of Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Christopher Edwards, Assistant Professor and Clinical Pharmacy Specialist in Emergency Medicine, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Allie Bridges, Director of Communications for the UA College of Pharmacy, for our extra creepy October episode. To get you into the Halloween spirit, we're going to put on our plague masks and talk about some creepy crawly critters that are still used in modern medicine and may even be lurking in an inpatient pharmacy near you. Our first guest will be Dr. Lourdes Castanon, a trauma and burn surgeon at Banner University Medical Center, Tucson, who will shed some light on the modern management techniques of complex wounds, which sometimes involve dabbling in the arcane. Then we'll hear what it's like to work with some unusual pharmacy colleagues from Dr. James Kamemo. Get ready for a spooktacular episode. <laughs> <laughs> Loving this. This is great. <laughs> so let's go ahead and jump into today's topics. Our first guest is Dr. Lourdes Castanon, MD. She's a burn surgeon and the director of the burn program at Banner University Medical Center, Tucson. She's a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and a clinical assistant professor of surgery with the Department of Surgery, Division of Trauma, Critical Care, Burns, and Emergency Surgery with the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Tucson. Dr. Castanon, thank you so much for coming on our program today. Thank you very much for having me today. I'm very excited about this topic, this very fun topic. Oh, we're really excited that you can be here. So uh, most people associate the use of leeches in medicine with you know, creepy long-billed plague masks and balancing out humors, but we still use leeches in the hospital today. Uh, I'm going to assume that these aren't part of like therapeutic bloodletting, so can you describe how leeches fit into modern medicine? Oh, it's funny you should mention that um, we've had a couple of patients here that were actually thinking or in the process of uh, starting leech therapy. Uh, so leech therapy has existed for for centuries, basically. If you look at the literature, there is some um, uh, the hieroglyphics, for example, the, the pharaohs used to use leeches for uh, all different types of ailments, including headaches. Uh, what they were calling diabetes, what they were calling like complex wounds. Um, and we use them. Um, I don't think we ever stopped using them. They only became approved by the FBA, surprisingly enough, in 2004. Hmm. Um, but the way that they fit now is that um, they went from being mainstream at one point in time. Like I mentioned, they were used to treat uh, diabetes, headaches, epilepsy, uh, and any form of wound or ailment. Right now, we're using them basically for microvascular surgery. They, they found their niche with uh, the plastic surgeons and anything that has to do with microsurgery. Um, and the reason is the anticoagulant properties that they have help with the venous congestion. Um, although there are still research that is going through, um, so it's not only for the anticoagulant properties with uh, venous congestion and flats, it's also used in diabetics, believe it or not. Okay. So when you have a diabetic foot that comes in, usually has really great big blood supply. So the main vessels are working fine. So they have pulses. The mm -hmm. problem is the sugar deposit in the microvasculature. And that's what eventually leads to these ulcers. These leeches have been able to show that they help with the increase in blood flow to this microvasculature because of the anticoagulant properties. Um, it's also using cancer. Um, there are some studies that are being put out that actually show that the saliva in the leeches can 
uh, help with metastatic disease, including breast and bone. I, I, have, I have questions. This is really interesting. So um, with metastatic disease, do they um, just apply the leech to the tumor itself or how does that work? So some of the studies that I found were uh, with metastatic diseases to the bone, for example, in breast cancer, when it metastasizes to the bone uh, and there's some impingement um, and pain, applying the leeches to that location decreases the amount of inflammation. And then mm -hmm. over time, along with chemotherapy, it has been shown to synergistically decrease the size of the tumor. Wow. wow. Really cool. It's, it's quite fascinating, actually, these, these little blood suckers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so do people generally um, take to this type of therapy? Does it scare people? You know, how? what are some of the reactions that you get out of patients when you have to do this? Uh, so it's usually a very long conversation with them and telling them the benefits, <laughs> the, the benefits and alternatives, which is usually additional surgery or complete loss of the graft or whatever um, extremity that we're dealing with. So you do have to prepare them. Um for the most part, when we do apply them, we do give a sedative because depending on the location, can be nerve-wracking. Mm -hmm. um, my experience has mostly been with um, a few cases that come to mind. Uh, for example, is we did uh, we had a full thickness burn uh, to the neck, and uh, your carotid vessels are right there. So we ended up doing a flap, um, and we had some issues with the with venous congestion and we had to apply uh, these leeches to the neck. Um, so it, it, it can be pretty gruesome. Um, when they do the microvasculature reconstruction, so for example, face flaps or nose reconstructions, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the first thing that gets um, with perfuse are the arteries and the veins take longer to regenerate. So until you're able to regenerate that microvasculature, you do get venous congestion and you run the risk of destroying the flaps. So you apply those leeches. So it, it can be pretty gruesome having leeches going in and out of your face. So again, oh, sedation or something to prepare the patient that, you know, it, it's, it's beneficial and it's, they don't hurt, which is the biggest fear that they have that when they get bitten, that they will feel the pain, but there is none. They, they have an anesthetic in their saliva. Is that immediate um, that the anesthetic effect kicks in or does it? Because you don't even feel it. You don't feel the bites. Um, you will feel the pressure of them, uh, mm -hmm. but the bites or anything else, no. It's it just the creepy crawling effect is the only right. thing that's bothersome. The scariest part is the visual. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Do you guys ever like um, create some sort of a barrier to block the patient from being able to see them? or? So we give glasses. <laughs> to <Yeah. laughs> Uh, they are unable to see them unless they really want to. Um, one of the biggest issues with them is that once they're done feeding or they're full, they will fall off. Oh, no. And uh, it's all fair game where they land, and sometimes they get away from us. Um, <laughs> so what oh, my gosh. <laughs> done in the past is that we would put a, um, a suture through the leech. So a suture attached to either a safety pin or a paper clip. And then just let them go crazy. And once they were done and we were looking for them, we would have a magnet. And a magnet would pull the leeches from wherever oh they were. Gosh. <laughs> Otherwise, you have to follow the blood trail. <laughs> do they leave a little blood trail as they crawl away? Sometimes they do. <laughs> so the nurse has to go with the magnet and, and you, you tend to feel. And again, you put a very long uh, safety pin or paper clip and it's easier to find them. 
Unfortunately, um, they're only a one-time use uh, because once they feed, they feed enough that they're not hungry anymore. Um, and then just to give you an example, they could feed, uh, they could eat 2 mLs to 20 mLs within a 10 to 30 minute period. Oh, wow. You have to really pay attention of how hungry they are. And once they're done, they will come off. And like I said, you have to find them. Mm-hmm. And they could store that blood for up to 18 months. Wow. So depending on the species and depending on, on, on the location of where they are. So like, and, and you find leeches pretty much anywhere, including the desert and um, like rivers and um, fresh water, salt, salt water, oceans and all that. You'll find different species of leeches that have learned to accommodate. And that's why they're a one-time use because once they feed, they feed for a very long time and they're not hungry for a while. So you have wow. to discard them, unfortunately. Uh, any other weird side effects we should be on the lookout for with uh, leeches? So the only thing is uh, sometimes people will have sensitivity. Uh, some will actually have an allergic to the leeches, believe it or not. Oh. Um, you can have blister formation or some erythema. But for the most part, they're pretty benign. And even their bite, which is very interesting, they have a Y-shaped mouth. Mm. And when they bite, they, they um, bite in a Y-shape. And it doesn't leave any scarring, which is very interesting. And and plastic surgeons have actually carried this over. And in some of the incisions, they use the same, um, basically the same mechanism, creating a Y in, in an incision. And what they found is that the um, the approximation of the skin and the tissue leaves much less scarring, much less uh, of a contracture. So they're very they're very kind in that sense. Scarring <laughs> <laughs> your side effects from. That. They were they are they have the patient in mind, of course, when they start to bite down. Um, so you know, you did already mention that they will feed until they're full and then they fall off. Is it common that you would have um, that you would always need them to be feeding for that amount of time, or is there a situation where you would ever want to take them off early? And if so, how do you get them off? Um, so for the most part, your biggest concern is venous congestion. And uh, the main therapy right now would be to treat venous congestion. And basically what you're looking for is how congested is a flap. Mm-hmm. So if it's something that's purple and it doesn't have good capillary refill, meaning that everything is just so overloaded and engorged with blood, you just keep adding the leeches until okay. they're able to remove some of that tension. Um, so, and that's where it becomes variable. So you put them until you're able to have a pretty, um, decompressed flap or or viable flap. So we've applied leeches for over a 24 hour period, uh, in, in my experience in the past. Um, and then in terms of once things start getting better, so it's not like a one day treatment or like a one time, uh, treatment with the leeches. It's, it's a continuous until you get some degree of microvasculature. And, and that can take, to be honest, in the complicated cases, uh, up to two to three days. Oh, wow. We're able to get some relief from that. So two to three days where you actually have the leeches around a clock because um, there's no other way to decompress the flap. All that all that um, venous blood just kind of sits there and marinates. So they take care of that. Um, and then once they're ready, you can just pick them off. Um, they're... Um, and then they don't put up a fight. They don't. They really don't. And then you just start them by putting them in alcohol, basically. Okay. How many, over a case like that, that would last between two to three days, how many leeches would that be? So you do, 
uh, depending on the size of the flap that you're trying to treat so like in a face for example you need on like two to three at a time okay. uh, but on something that's very large like a whole neck or a whole like like a breast reconstruction for example um you, you could have as many as 10 leeches working at the same time so again it, it they they will suck between two mls to 20 mls in a 30 minute period so again, depending on, on the size of the wound that you're treating, and it also depends on how congested it is. Got it. Do you have any um, uh, crazy stories from <laughs> uh, using leeches that you might be allowed to share with us? Obviously, you know, not violating any HIPAA rights. Um, the one that comes to mind is that person that we did the, uh, the flap to the face. Um, the leeches had a... Um, a safety pin attached to them, except we could not find it anywhere. And oh, we were using no. the metal detector <laughs> and no one could find anything. And um, it ended up hiding underneath the gums of the person. And it's like only when we went near the face that it started beeping. And oh, then we saw no. a safety pin. And again, the patient was sedated, so they, they really couldn't feel anything. But yeah, they, they could hide pretty much anywhere. And, and oh my gosh. Or, or something so that you could trap them back with the magnet. And, and it's not that we lost the leech for a long period of time. It's right. I couldn't figure out where it was. And by using the, um, the metal detector, we were able to find, find them there. That, that does bring up another question. How do, they, how do you keep them isolated to the area they're supposed to be on? Do they, want, do they tend to want to kind of move around and explore? So for the most part, they stay in the area that has the most venous congestion because that's where all the bounty food is for yeah. them. Um, the other thing is when you have a, um, a paper clip or a safety pin, you could just attach them to a, a suture and then tie that to the bed mm. so that it acts as a leash so that they don't wander around and there's just such a distance that you allow them to go. Because sometimes, again, they go to areas that are like, congested or that they have good flow so sometimes you want to go into the mouth or up the nose or mm -hmm. um, so that's how you prevent them from getting there where you actually put them uh, on a safety um, on a safety pin and then tie it into like either the clothing or something so that they don't go too far a little leech leash um, so, so when you put them onto the patient, do you use, um, forceps to apply it or do you just use a gloved hand? And if it's a gloved hand, how do you keep it from biting you? Um, so the first time around, we usually show them how to do it, but I, it's either gloves or just a pickups. You just gotta be gentle with them because you could really like squish them. Um, but, but yeah, no, they will not attach to anything that's plastic or, or rubber, for example. So as long as you're using gloves and not your bare hands, you're pretty safe. All right. So if we learn anything from today, it's yeah. don't touch them with bare hands. Correct. Correct. And, and don't forget the magnet and the safety pin. All right. So, so switching gears a little bit, um, several years ago, I had a patient come into the emergency department and he had this advanced wound on his leg that hadn't been well cared for. It had this dressing on there that looked like it had been on for a while, a few weeks or so. And when we cut it away, a bunch of flies and maggots kind of came out and everybody in the room was kind of shocked. But uh, when the docs kind of cleaned up the wound a little bit and inspected it, the wound looked great. Um, so uh, occasionally when I'm working in inpatient pharmacy, I'll, I'll see an order come through for medical maggots and then we'll send a, a vial of them to the floor. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how they're used, how they're helpful and, and what their role is in, in therapy? Um, maggots are nature's doctors when it comes to wounds. They are probably the, the, 
the most amazing creature that exists when it comes to wounds. Um, you're probably going to get an order very soon, just to let you know. <laughs> I'll make sure we've got some in the fridge. Um, maggots are fantastic little little organisms that um, very few people will actually have an allergic reaction to them, but they only feed on necrotic tissue. Um, if the tissue is alive, they will actually respect it and and not cause any damage whatsoever. They also have anti-inflammatory properties, and they also feed on on bacteria that's on the dead tissue itself, and they're able to digest it. And it, it's been shown that their saliva actually has some antibacterial properties. Um, and again, it, it's an anti-inflammatory, so that overreaction that the body has whenever there is a wound is humiliated so that you don't have collateral damage. Nice. Um, just to give you an example, we recently had a patient that came in who was homeless, who had uh, fourth degree burns actually. Wow. Um, so it went past the skin into the muscle and in some areas down to the bone um, that he did not seek any medical treatment for. In any other circumstance, he would have come in in septic shock. Mm -hmm. Except when we open up the dressings, he had maggots. Wow. Um, and they were feeding on all this necrotic tissue. And once we were able to remove and clean the tissue, everything was nice, clean, and healthy. Wow. And probably a better job than any of us could have ever done. Um, but again, no signs of infection. And in some areas, we were able to see neovascularization. So they were actually helping with the healing process as well. And this wound was over a month old. And like I said, it was down to bone in some areas with very little damage. And even the bone was healthy underneath it. That's incredible. Wow. So they are pretty amazing little animals. And we use them uh, frequently um, in, in complicated areas where we don't have access or in areas that are a little difficult to get to. Like, so for example, necrotic bone or, or an area where it's hard to get access to. So like if you have uh, vessels that are involved or, or nerve endings that are involved, sometimes yeah. it becomes difficult to like manually clean it because if you go too far, you'll injure the vessel or, or the, uh, um, the nerve endings. So if you put the maggots in there, they just go crazy and they clean it up very nicely for you. So it's really just uh, the, the decision to use maggots is really just, you know, when you have that complex wound where it's, it's difficult to get to the area that needs to be uh, debrided and, and mm -hmm. the, you think the, the little helpers are going to get in there and uh, kind of knock it out, huh? Absolutely. And again, it also helps us with patients who cannot tolerate going to the operating room. Mm. So if you have someone who's very sick, who you are either unable to transport or will not tolerate the anesthetic or the pain is too overwhelming and... It, it, maggots is definitely a way to go because they also have some anesthetic properties. So as they're eating away, they're not feeling anything and they're only eating necrotic tissue. So they're very painless. Again, have antibiotic properties to them, have um, anti-inflammatory properties as well. Um, and they do a really, really good job. So, so how do you know when they're done doing their job? Um, are using medical maggots. You got to make sure that you are recycling them and getting rid of them every uh basically every 48 to 72 hours because they they will become flies and then then they're just annoying so we'll have to get materials to start fly, uh, stocking fly strips just in case uh, we don't catch them in time uh so, so when you make the decision to to discontinue them or or when it's been a couple of days and you're worried about them sort of progressing through their life cycle uh, is it just a washout do you just clean out the wound and then rinse the maggots away correct we usually use dakins Okay. Uh, which is medical bleach, and that will kill anything and everything. 
So I have also heard that you can use fish scales or honey to um, to promote wound healing. Do um, you use either of these in your practice? And can you kind of comment on why these tend to help with burns or just with wounds in general? Sure, absolutely. Um, honey is one of those uh, uh, medication um, overall nature's goodness um that is so hyperosmotic that it doesn't allow anything to grow on it it also has peroxide like activities um and it's been used um pretty much as, as like for centuries basically i mean there, there's literature um from the greeks and also the the mayans and the aztecs used to use honey as well in their wounds um, the first time I ever encountered was when I was younger and my mom used to work for the Red Cross and we would do these vaccination campaigns mm -hmm. and from time to time they would bring someone with a chronic wound and, and thinking that we had physicians along with us and one of the things that they would apply is honey to those, to those wounds. Wow. And um, again, it has peroxide-like activity, so it would help lie some of that uh, uh, the, the dead cells and the bacteria, and it's so hyperosmotic that it won't let anything grow on it. And again, it has nutrients for the surrounding tissue itself. Um, we use it both to debris and also to, to promote healing. So if you have a wound that has some necrotic tissue, uh, we'll apply the honey and, and, and basically apply it until we see a layer of, uh, of epithelium that's forming. Um, and, it, and it works pretty much for all, all degrees of burns, all, de all types of chronic wounds. Um, we've actually closed some sacred acubiti ulcers as well that were down to bone. And over time, it helps with uh, uh, both debridement and, uh, and cleaning of the wounds. That's impressive. And Those things are nightmare to treat right and, and that's the thing oh, it, it's pretty cheap pretty uh pretty affordable uh at one point it became medical honey mm -hmm. and the prices just went sky high but in reality it's just regular honey <laughs> <laughs> i mean that that leads me to my next question can you just use any old honey or any old fish scale type or do you have to have some some sort of medical grade or a specific breed of fish or I'm assuming you're not going to the grocery store and grabbing the honey bear off the shelf and then, you know, taking it back to the hospital. That is correct. You don't know what else is in it. Right, right. That's the biggest concern that um, it's medical grade because it's been decontaminated from anything else and all you're getting is uh, the pure honey. Now, um, some of the companies have mixed it with different compounds as well. Uh, so um, and it, it depends on the pharmaceutical and what they dispense. Most of them will have some sort of in combination with something else to help in either lysis or promote epithelial growth. Um, so it depends on the company and who's dispensing it. Now, in terms of the fish scales, um, I have some experience from, with fish scales from uh, some medical missions that I've done. But the way that the fish scales, it's not the scales themselves, it's the skin of the fish mm. that they use. Um, and it's mostly used for uh, partial thickness burns. So where you still have some um, dermis that is left. Uh, and it works the same way as any other xenograph. Xenograph meaning animal products, allograph meaning um, same species, so it would be like cadaver skin. 
and the autograph meaning itself. Um, and these are used to temporarily close wounds. And because it is skin, it works as a semi-permeable membrane. Mm -hmm. And it will help with uh, fluid losses, electrolyte losses, as well as bacterial contamination, because it acts like a biological dressing. The only downside is as the wound is healing, new neovascularization turns to take place and it tries to either incorporate it, absorb it, or reject it. Mm -hmm. And because it realizes that it's not self and it's actually a xenograph, so it doesn't have any of the HLA types that you would, it rejects it. Mm -hmm. So it's only good for four, three to four days, and mm -hmm. it's something that you, um, that you change on a regular basis. And again, it's to protect the wound, to prevent fluid losses, decrease the amount of inflammation, and decrease the amount of pain. And this fish skin is something that they developed or it became more popular in Brazil uh, because of the amount of tilapia that they have. It's actually tilapia fish that they use for the Amazon. Um, we have something very similar. It's not fish. We use either sheep skin or pork skin. Um, and it basically works in the same way. It, it's basically a skin that works as a semi-permeable uh, membrane and it acts as a biological dressing until the body is able to try to incorporate it, and then at that point it rejects it. The properties of it acting like a semi-permeable membrane is why it's advantageous over, you know, like a, like a normal dressing, like a wet gauze or something like that? Correct. Um, better than a wet gauze. Uh, because, uh, it will prevent fluid losses as opposed to a wet gauze that would just allow things to just go through back and forth. Wow. Again, it's that, that dermis that you have in place that acts as a semi-permeable membrane. And because it is covering it, the body is not stimulated to try to, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't identify as, as an inflammatory process that you would if you had an open wound. I mean, it's still trying to close it, but because there's something that's space occupying, it's not overreacting to the open hole that you would, for example. We tend to use this for superficial second degree burns where you have skin desquamation and some loss of your, um, of your epidermis. So now you have uh, leaky capillaries as well as leaky lymphatics um, that are open. And when you place this, it, it acts as a, again, like a, it, it clogs it. It, it temporarily, um, uh, like a bathtub, it plugs, it plugs whatever you have while yeah. still allowing for the tissue to continue healing. Um, if you were to have like a giant burn, for example, um, the other thing, another way that you can use this is if you're doing a very large graft, for example, let's say you have someone with the 60, 70% burn, um, you need about another 30 or 40% of skin to close these. So wow. you cannot, now you now if you take 30 or 40% of that skin, now the purse is 100% open, which you cannot, sure. no, no one can tolerate that. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you start closing these wounds sequentially. You mm -hmm. would put either the pig skin or the tilapia skin or, or, or whatever um, xenograft you have, cover mm -hmm. the wounds temporarily, take some skin, and then just start closing, and then use that on top of the skin that you're closing. So, for example, if I have uh, a person with 40% burn, I can take 10% yeah. of their skin, 
stretch it out into a big netting and place it in the open areas and then mm -hmm. use this tilapia skin or pig skin and cover it uh, um, on top of that mesh area mm -hmm. so that the mesh skin as it starts to grow um, starts rejecting the xenograft. Yeah. The xenograft will take for three to four days, but as the, the mesh skin starts growing, um, there's new neovascularization. The body recognizes that the xenograft, it's not owned, it rejects it, mm -hmm. and then the skin grows in that, in that area that's open. Mm -hmm. So eventually as the skin grows, everything gets rejected and it sloughs off. And in the meantime, you prevented fluid losses, electrolyte losses, and a significant amount of pain. It's actually fascinating how um, xenograft skin actually works. And it can be pretty much anything. Really? And it will last, like I said, four days until the body recognizes that it's not its own and then it rejects it. So hmm. then it will, it will basically fall apart. So that's what you have to renovate it. So you had said that this is something, you know, the use of honey had been used for centuries, that uh, there, there are lots of instances of this in history. Um, I'm curious for some modern equivalents, are there any synthetic alternatives that have been created that are trying to recreate uh, the benefits of these substances that, that you could comment on? Um, so the properties of the MediHoney would be something that um, like a proteolytic type of enzyme. So, one of, so something that is very similar is collagenase. It's, it's a type of cream that um, breaks down collagen and necrotic tissue. It also has antiperoxide activity, so that would be your peroxide, for example. Mm -hmm. So before we had commercially available um, honey, we would use a combination of peroxide in the very contaminated wounds. Uh, we would use either a bacitracin or a mupurosin, depending on what we're trying to cover. Um, and then some sort of um, some sort of dressing, either a silvadine or a bacitracin or a mupurosin. And if we were trying to get rid of necrotic tissue, we, again, that would be the santal. You know, when I when I picture you know putting a bunch of honey on a wound, I uh, <laughs> yeah. I can only think like, how do we get that out of there? Does it uh, degrade over time, or you just end up with a sticky mess? Do you just keep applying it over the old honey? So that's the other benefit. It's a sticky mess, so it forces people to wash and clean it. Um, so when you're applying, there's a couple of ways to apply it. So when you get the honey itself, it looks like honey. It will look like sugar. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that you apply it is by putting the tube under warm water. And okay. what that does is it melts the sugar. Yeah. And you apply it onto a dressing and then you just fit it to the shape of the wound that you have. So if you just leave it in place, if it's inflamed, the body temperature will actually increase and allow the honey to equally disperse around that wound, right? Oh, body wow. temperature, it's amazing. Wow. Yeah. And as the wound starts healing, the body temperature on that wound starts changing. So the, the honey just stays in that location. And you'll notice if you apply it over a good healthy area, it stays sugar. And huh. in areas that are affected, it tends to melt. Wow. Now, the way that you wash it is with water and soap, warm water and soap. And then that also helps with lysis of any necrotic tissue that you would have. And then you reapply. Well, Dr. Castanon, thank you so much for coming on today and lending your expertise. It was truly a pleasure having you on, and we hope that you enjoyed yourself as much as we did. Well, thank you, Allison. I really appreciate your time. And thank you, Chris, for, uh, for the invitation to participate. It, I had lots of fun, and thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time.
Our final guest is a College of Pharmacy alum, Dr. James Kamemo. He's the Clinical Pharmacy Program Coordinator at Banner University Medical Center, Tucson, and a Clinical Assistant Professor in Pharmacy Practice and Science at the University of Arizona College of Pharmacy. So one of the orders that tends to freak out new pharmacists is when we get a prescription for either medical maggots or medical leeches. And one of the things we're really hoping that people can take away from today's episodes is the, the pharmacist's role in keeping these things alive and getting them to the bedside in a usable fashion. So obviously we shouldn't send them via pneumatic tubes, but I'd like to pick your brain about the proper storage and, and dispensation of these creatures. So, so like, where do we even get medical leeches? And do they come from the same place as medical maggots? Is just um, so we, we basically deal with two, two companies. Um, one special, specializes in you know, farming of, of leeches. And the other one specializes in, in maggot therapy. And it, it's interesting, if you read their website, they talk about manufacturing maggots. So I, I'm curious to, to see what exactly is involved with manufacturing a, a maggot, but that's the terminology they, they use. Um, and so again, there, there, there are two, two companies uh, that, are, that are distinct. Um, they both have been around for quite some time. Um, and so we feel comfortable um, in using their products. Obviously they are regulated by the, the FDA. So, and if you, if you get uh, a maggot therapy sent to you, there's actually a package insert like you would see with uh, a medication, kind of fun to read. <laughs> so <laughs> so the, actually the last order that we, um, we placed with um, the company that we use, we actually, um, we actually basically took every maggot that they had on the shelf. <laughs> oh, wow. um, it was such a large uh, wound that, um, that we basically wiped their entire inventory out. And, and I was thinking that, you know, I, I gave the surgeon a heads up. I'm like, you know, you may be, I, I don't know how fast they can turn around um, mm -hmm. larva or, or maggots. So, but I wanted to let her know that, you know, potentially if you need to retreat, we may not be able to because um, we basically exhausted their entire supply. Mm. Um, again, this wound was, was very large. And, and so, I, you know, the dosing is kind of interesting. It's um, the, 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 the dosing is based on the size of the wound. So it's like five maggots per centimeter squared of, mm. of surface area. So this patient had, I think the, their wound size was, uh, 600 square centimeters. Wow. So, you know, we actually ended up purchasing close to 3,000 maggots for this particular patient. Do the surgeons typically order like a specific number of maggots or do they just tell you like how large the wound is and you have to do the calculation yourself? Yeah, they basically told us how large the wound was and then we did the basic calculation. So the, the way it comes is um, they, they actually have a a two by two inch uh, gauze that's impregnated with with maggots. In uh, each uh, gauze contains anywhere from two hundred fifty to five hundred maggots, wow. and then they put two of those gauzes in a one vial. So um, so basically, we kind of calculated: okay, how many you know, how how many maggots? are we going to need for this, this size of wound? And it came to be around, you know, 2000 to 3000. And so we ended up buying, I think eight vials. And I was reading about uh, what they called a blowfly strike. And <clears throat> they've actually uh, um, identified large animals that have been infested with, uh, with maggots. And usually it's like an infestation with 60,000 maggots. But the condition that basically happens is they, these maggots basically, as they're eating the dead tissue, uh, start releasing protein, mm. 
mm. uh, in the wound and then it gets absorbed to the, to the bloodstream uh, and obviously increase uh, protein means increases in ammonia levels and so you can actually you know these 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 large animals can develop some sort of encephalopathy cool. um, which I guess theoretically could happen to a human so they they talk about that in the package insert that you know, the maximum dose for maggot therapy is 3,000 maggots. So. Wow. So, so does that mean on one setting or, you know, at, at any given time, like only 3,000 can be on the patient or over the entirety of the treatment you can only use? I think it's at any one time. Yeah. Okay. And, so, wow. and so a lot of times um, they may, uh, you know, the, w- when they place the maggots, they, they generally are only on the wound. Um, for 48 to 72 hours, because again, they're, they start maturing, so they need to be removed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if the wound still needs to be debrided, they, you know, they might apply another, you know, dose to that wound uh, for mm-hmm. another 48 to 72 hours. Got so it. I think um, it's just at any one time that that dose is 3,000 maggots. How are they shipped? I'm curious. Do they come in like a freeze-dried packaging? Or, I mean, they're obviously alive when you receive them, so... I mean, yeah, they're just there, you know, there's no special markings on the package that it comes in, but they, you know, they, they're packed in styrofoam containers and they have lots of, you know, padding around so they're not too jostled too much. Um, so but basically there's, there's nothing on the outside of the box that says these are, you know, your leeches or maggots handled care. So, so once we get them into the pharmacy, um, what's the next step? How do we keep them alive? Yeah. So, so, so maggots are, uh, so are, are a little different. Um, obviously we can't keep an inventory of maggots on our shelf because if we did we would obviously have a, a fly infestation you know if you remember <laughs> maggots you know they only live five to ten days and then they they pupate basically i think i'm saying that right and then they basically you know are sleeping for another 10 to 20 days and that's when they basically turn into a fly and actually the maggots that we're using is is the blowfly maggot um, so they're basically like the caterpillar of uh equivalent to a butterfly so they, you know, we can't, obviously we can't keep them around because they're only going to be, around, you know, in the, in the larva stage for five to 10 days. So when we get a, an order for uh, maggot therapy, um, we actually have to call the company uh, and they overnight that package. Um, and, and the number of maggots is again dependent on uh, the size of the wound that we're, we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when they come, you know, arrive the next day, basically we just, we, we open up the box um, and make sure that the maggots are alive. Obviously, we want to see them wiggling around. Um, um, we don't want to see that they're uh, slimy or, or discolored or anything like that. Um, so, and once we determine that you know they look they look healthy and are viable, we basically um, generally send them to either the floor or the OR where they're then administered to the patient. So. Once we receive them, they really should be used within 24 hours. Um, mm. Any longer than that, then you, you're running the risk of, of them getting to be a little too big. And if, if there's some sort of delay, I guess, in, um, in uh, administering the maggots, you can actually um, kind of cool them down a little bit so that they kind of slow, it kind of slows down their growth. But again, in general, you're, you're, you're getting them in and you're shipping them to the patient or delivering to the patient or the, phys- or the surgeon uh, to administer the patient right away. So, but with leeches, we actually, they're, they're a little different. We can keep leeches for as long as they're, they're alive, as long as we're maintaining a healthy uh, living condition for, for them. So again, they're, they're also shipped in the mail. Uh, when, when they arrive, 
in our pharmacy, we basically transport them into what we call the leech mobile home, which is basically just this large plexiglass cylinder that's about two gallons. Um, and we basically fill it up with, with uh, distilled water. The worst thing you can ever use for leeches is chlor- chlorinated water or tap mm-hmm. water. So it has to be distilled water. And then um, we do have to uh, put in some, uh, a special type of salt. They call it Haribo uh, salt. Basically, it's specially formulated so that um, the leeches are happy. <laughs> <laughs> so basically then, yeah, we just transport uh, the leeches into our little leech mobile home and then they're good to go. And as long as we take good care of them, you know, changing out the water every other day, and making sure that, you know, if, the, if there's a leech that um, doesn't make it, that we remove them, you know, immediately from the, the, the container. So mm-hmm. the, the container we have is like two gallons. So we can actually store about 50 leeches. And we can, again, we can, can, we can keep those as long as they're, you know, that they live. Um, and I, I was, you know, for this podcast, I, I kind of looked up the life expectancy of a leech. And, and there are some that can live up to 10 years. <laughs> so Holy I don't know Holy. if medical leeches live that long. Um, but. We, you know, they, they can hang around for a, for a while. So that's kind of the, the, the situation that we, you know, we deal with every day. And we, we, we do have technicians that are in charge of taking care of uh, the leeches. And we, we have one that really uh, takes, so she has a lot of passion. And so we call her the leech wrangler. <laughs> the leech wrangler, eh? The leech wrangler. <laughs> All right. Is, do you have to have some sort of certification or to handle... Uh, like a medical maggot or a medical leech, since it, I mean, in my opinion, it does seem different than, a, a, you know, handling a drug. But I'm curious if like in pharmacy school, this was something that you learned about or had to get special certification for anything like that? Yeah, actually, maggots are actually considered a medical device and not a, uh, not a, uh, a medication or a drug. Oh, so okay. in most medical devices in, in hospital settings are actually purchased by materials not pharmacy. Uh, but I think within most hospitals that uh, treat patients with maggot therapy, even though it's a, considered a medical device, um, pharmacy usually is, are the, you know, is the department that handles them. Because mm-hmm. uh, again, we're, we're, we, we have healthcare professionals. Um, uh, but again, there's no, there's no special training that, that's involved. So when you joined the professional setting, was this a surprise to you that this was being used? Or you know, did you have some idea I had some idea, but it was kind of, yeah, it is kind of <laughs> neat concept when you think about it. I mean, you know, leech, leech therapy has been around for centuries. Um, so, you know, um, and it, it does catch people off guard a little bit. I mean, I, I, we were talking about maggot therapy the other day in our pharmacy and people are like, what, what, you know, because there are people that have never heard of it or seen it. Um, so it is, it is kind of exciting when we, we get orders for it. Yeah, I'm. I'm also curious how often you seem to get orders for them. For for maggots, we used to um, actually treat patients with maggots more often than we do now. It, it's um, we would get in maybe an order a couple times a year, um, and then we went several years where we didn't have any patients that required maggot therapy. Mm. So it just kind of it it varies, you know, and it kind of may be dependent on just the the physicians whether they have experience in using it or not. So it's, it's not used, maggots are not used commonly. Leeches are used more often than the maggots. Um, mm-hmm. And again, we'll, we'll have several patients um, a, a year that will be on leech therapy. Do you ever name any of the leeches or maggots? 
And if so, what are their names? <laughs> yeah, we have not actually, but I remember being up on the floors uh, and uh, coming across patients that were receiving maggot therapies and the nurses had named some of the maggots. <laughs> so um, I haven't named them personally. I don't know of anybody in pharmacy that's named them personally, but I have heard nurses up on the floors that have given names to, to some of the maggots. <laughs> I'm surprised it's the maggots. You need so many names. I know. I was going to say the leeches are around for longer. You know, you, you got to feed them and clean them every day or every couple of days. But you know what? I, I, I wonder if our, our local leech wrangler, I'll have to ask her if she has names for the leeches. I've never asked, actually asked her. but I definitely would. <laughs> Especially given that you mentioned they could live up to 10 years. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's like a dog. <laughs> When I used to, uh, when I was in management, I used to give tours to uh, high school kids that were interested in, in pursuing a, a career in the health sciences, right? So they kind of would hang out with nurses, they'd hang out with docs, and then they'd come and tour pharmacy. And I would always include the bucket of leeches and uh, or, or the the leech mobile home uh, in the tour because uh, all the all the high school kids would be like, "Oh, that's gross! Let me look at it. I want to play with them." <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one of the more more interesting and unique things that we get into the pharmacy. And you, when you think about leech therapy, you're thinking about you know back in the you know the the, the Bronze Age or whatever. We <laughs> 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 were ble bleeding people. You know, it's like. This has been yeah. a long, long time. So no, I had no idea it still existed. I really, until we started researching this episode, I was under the impression that no leech would ever come near a person in a hospital setting. I was wrong, very wrong. I was doing a, a presentation several years ago on um, on seizures and status epilepticus, and uh, I found this old article. I think it was from JAMA, but it was around the turn of the century, and uh, the the physician writing the article was talking about how he treated this patient's seizure. And he said that he um, uh, did the standard therapy of putting the patient into um, a bathtub filled with ice water and then applied the standard 20 leeches. And it still didn't break his seizure, Jim. It was amazing. <laughs> oh, man. It was it was interesting. Dr. Kamemo, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise with us. Um, I can't think of anyone else I'd rather have on the podcast talking about <laughs> this topic and lots of other topics. So I hope we can get you back on for some uh, some of your wisdom uh, later on in the future as well. So thank you again. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. It was it was fun. Appreciate it. And that is our show. Thank you for coming back this month. We really hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, suggesting a topic, or have any corrections or an omission that you want us to recognize, please email us at farmcast, that's P-H-A-R-M-C-A-S-T, at pharmacy.arizona.edu. Have a happy and safe Halloween.